We are continuing our study on the book of Jude with a theme of contending for the faith. Contending for the faith. We notice uh, the church today has come under attack from, not from outside so much so, but from within the church. Because false teachers are continuing to deceive many people and to lead them astray. And Jude, in this short book, is uh, delivering, as it were, a call to arms as he exposes these wolves in sheep's clothing and emphasizes their final end. Now, as believers, we must contend earnestly for the faith. We must guard our spiritual lives. We must use all the spiritual resources that we have at our disposal and actively seek to restore and protect the vulnerable flock of God. Now, these are last days. The Bible said in the last days this will happen. And it is at times easy to find somebody who is outside the church telling some things that are wrong. But for people who are within the church, if they begin to say some things which are contrary to scripture, at times it is difficult for us to accept that they are wrong. You know, we may say maybe we have a difference of opinion or whatever. But if you notice, these are times that we are living in where people are promising a lot of great things to people. There are new prophets today. There are new uh, gospels today, you know, the health, wealth, gospel. All of them are promoting different, different things. But and at the back of it all, they are actually promoting their own selves for their own gain. So we must be careful. And this evening, we are looking at verses 3 and 4, where Jude is emphasizing that warning must take precedence over encouragement. He starts off by saying, Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So in just these two small verses, there's so much of a depth of understanding and meaning. So let's get into that this evening, okay? So you find, Anna, in your notes, Anna, there will be different questions if you were to say to ask yourself, even when you're looking at uh, this particular statement itself. What caused Jude to change his purpose for writing. He started out saying, I wanted to write to you about this, but I felt the necessity to write to you about this. So what was the changeover? Why did he change? That's a question we can ask. What do the words contend earnestly mean? What do the words common salvation mean? What do you mean by faith? You know? So all these are questions that we must definitely ask ourselves. Moving further, <clears throat> if you notice John Calvin, you know, in his prefatory address uh, to the entitled The Institutes of the Christian Religion, this is what he writes. He says, but when I perceived that the fury of certain bad men had risen to such a height in your realm, that there was no place in it for sound doctrine, I thought it might be of service if I were in the same work, both to give instruction to my countrymen and also lay before your majesty a confession from which you may learn what the doctrine is, so that so the, what the doctrine is that so inflames the rage of those madmen who are this day with fire and sword troubling your kingdom. He gave a defense of what he believed in. Why? 
because people had crept in with different wrong doctrines. As a result, in his prefatory address, he says, this is the reason why I'm writing this, okay? So, let's start off, you know, with that verse which starts by saying, make every effort. Make every effort. While I was making every effort, warning takes precedence over encouragement. He was planning to encourage them you know, about the common salvation that we share, but something changed over. Now, encouraging the church, giving discipleship studies of how we can grow in our faith, Bible studies is good, but there also comes a time when warning takes precedence over encouragement. <laughs> The word that Jude uses to speak about an you know, effort is the word spoud, you know, S-P-O-U-D-E, you know, Greek word, okay, which communicates the concept of speed or haste and may mean that Jude, although he tried hard, he could not carry out his intentions for the original message because something happened that the Spirit of God spoke to him. He felt a necessity, if you were to say, to change direction. So, if you notice, he starts off by saying, I was making every effort to write to you about some things that would encourage you. But, but there was a changeover. I felt there was a necessity. There was a necessity. But you stating <clears throat> that he felt a necessity to change direction, it would literally can be translated as there was a pressure from the Spirit of God. As he was writing this, first intention was, let's write a lesson, letter to them about how they can grow in their faith in God. But the Spirit of God laid this upon his heart. So if the Spirit of God laid upon his heart a change in direction for the content of this letter, then we must definitely take time to study its content because it has a lot of significance and importance for us in the last days that we live in. So when he, say, when he speaks about <clears throat> the common salvation, the common salvation that uh, he wanted to write about, salvation, the Greek word soteria, well, was a common desire of the people during the first century. There were many mystery religions, many philosophical schools, you know, and even the emperor enforced emperor worship that if you do this, if you follow these practices, then you would have salvation. A lot of them focused on you know, you'll get deliverance from you know, this particular life you know, of misery and problems if you follow this particular step. So there are a lot of different, different groups of people who are offering salvation. Like even in our day today, there are different religions who offer different patterns of salvation. If you notice the picture that is shown there, it was an example, the Mithras cult, which was a Roman military cult, borrowed from Christianity and utilized blood as the means of salvation, although their blood came from the supposed slaying of a mighty bull by Mithras. This is implied in an inscription that was found at this place in a dated uh, 202 AD, which says, us too you have saved by shedding blood, which grants eternity. So these type of cults were present at that time who were taking from Christianity some thoughts about the shedding of blood, then only have salvation, put it into their own religious cult and said, hey, this is what it is. So there were these groups of people. Now, when Jude is writing about this common salvation, he's not saying that the salvation that they are talking about and the salvation we are talking about is the same. That is not what he is speaking about. Jude is not saying that all religions have the same type of salvation that is a common salvation. No, that is not what he is speaking about. What does he speak about? Or what does he mean when he uses this word uh, soteria? for salvation. The word Greek meaning is two words and our two and our understandings. One is a deliverance and the second is a preservation. And when he speaks about something that is common, it refers to something that is communal or shared. So when he's speaking about a common salvation, he's saying that all of us 
who have believed in this deliverance and preservation by what Christ has done for us. That is the common salvation that we believe in. God's true salvation provides us these two benefits. It gives us deliverance from the wrath of God that abides on every non-believer. And it also gives us preservation in that deliverance where God guarantees his unconditional promise that he has started the work, he will keep doing it. He will preserve it. He will keep his covenant. So both sides of the word meaning of soteria salvation is fulfilled in Christ. He has delivered us from sin and he assures us of, his pres of our preservation in him and until we meet him face to face. So that is the common salvation that he is speaking about. Let's look at a couple of verses <coughs> that speak about this. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is no other name, only through the name of Jesus. Romans 1.16 tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. <laughs> the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is through the gospel that we are saved. That is a common salvation. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What God has done for us in Christ, his grace, that is the common salvation. Hebrews 2.3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So if this is the salvation that God has brought for us, and he assures us also in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. These are the words that are found in different passages of Scripture, which speak about our common salvation. We are all united together in the bond of Christ. When we believe in what Christ has done for us, that is the deliverance and the salvation that he has offered to us because of his death on the cross. And as we all believe it together, that becomes the commonality, that which is common among us. He is not saying that whatever religion you follow, we all get saved. No, no. He's speaking about we are all saved through what Jesus has done for us. And as we all participate together in it, that is the common thing. Okay. <clears throat> then moving further, he says, <clears throat> warning is urgent and must take priority. As much as encouragement is good, warning needs to be done immediately. It must take precedence over the encouragement. So that's why he says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. Now, warning, if you notice, is never really easy, never really a pleasant task, isn't it? If you are you know, the boss and you had to give a warning to one of your workers, it's never easy. But it is a necessary task if they have to change, if they have to improve, if they have to become better. So this is why Jude, when he's writing here, it's difficult, but he says, I felt the necessity. And remember, I spoke to you about the word necessity, which basically the Spirit of God has impressed upon his heart for a change of direction. So he says you know, that this is the, the reason why I'm writing this letter to you that you contend earnestly for the faith. Let's look at what the meaning of this word contend is. The Greek word is epagonizomai. Okay, we get our English word actually of uh, na, agony from this or agonize from this. The Greek meaning of this is to exert intense effort. It actually connotates a rivalry. And the term contend earnestly is a compound verb from which we get the English word to agonize. It is in the present infinitive form, which means that the struggle will be continuous. So what Jude is saying over here is there will be a continuous fight against false teaching. And the Christians must take it seriously 
so serious that we actually agonize over the fight in which we are engaged. Ask yourself this evening, do you really contend for your faith? Do you fight for your faith? Do you fight for the doctrines that you believe in? Or have you taken it lightly? Maybe you do not not even know the basic doctrine. As a result, you you don't even know the difference between the false teachers and the true doctrine. But once you are aware of the true doctrine, then when you see something else that is false coming in, there's definitely an agony. It's like if you have a clean sheet of paper, you're wearing a white t-shirt, you know, and you know, a dirt falls on it. Even if it is a little dirt, you are upset over it, you fight over it, you want to get it cleaned out. That is the type of imagery that is used here when Jude is saying we must contend earnestly. <laughs> the story is told of a number of years ago about a noted Christian apologist who was lecturing at Ohio State University and was driven by the then newly finished Vexer Center for the Arts, which the driver of the vehicle referred to as the first postmodern building in America. So here is this guy, a Christian apologist, who goes around to see this place, you know, which was referred to as the first postmodern building in America. Now, what was so postmodern about this building? The driver explained how the house contained stairways that went to nowhere, pillars that had no function, and other such things. The one driving the car enthusiastically explained that the architect designed the building with no particular purpose in mind because he believed that life is random and has no ultimate meaning and purpose. Now, the apologist listened to all this, and after a pause, he asked him this question. He said, sir, I have just one question. Did he do that with the foundation? Did he do that with the foundation? Now, foundation is important, isn't it? So, we must in our own lives make sure that the foundation of the gospel is solid and clear. We Only if the foundation is solid and clear then what is going to be built on that will also be secure, (laughs) okay? Moving further, contend earnestly for the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith. The faith that is spoken of here is, if you were to say, the noun form. You can use faith as a verb, you can use faith as a noun. Here it is used as a noun to refer to the foundation of the Christian belief or the Christian worldview. It is known and received, it is a known and received body of truth about who Jesus is and the salvation that we have through him, the person of Christ and what he has done for us. This is what we believe in. If you notice in different churches, you have the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, where you affirm your faith. This is what we believe in. The content of your faith is what is referred to over here. But during the times of the Enlightenment and Modernism, philosophers, especially a person by the name of Immanuel Kant, created a dichotomy or compartments of knowledge. Okay. He put these things uh, to, uh, in different uh, compartments. He says the mind has the objective proof, facts, verifiable science. Okay? So the mind is this compartment, whereas the heart is a compartment which has you know, opinion, faith, feeling, you know, subjectiveness, and religion. So he divided these two. He says the mind and the heart is different. This is why he went on further and he said, I have therefore found it necessary to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. He says, facts have nothing to do with religion. So here was a philosopher who said that you can believe what you want to, have faith in what you want to, but it does not need to be factual. But that is not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is based on facts. So when he's speaking about content earnestly for the faith, he is not speaking about an imaginary thing. He is speaking about something that is very, very tangible. 
So when faith is thus exalted above everything else, this is a statement now coming up from another philosopher, atheistic philosopher. When faith is thus exalted above everything else, it necessarily follows that reason, knowledge, and patient inquiry have to be discredited. So he says, if you are putting this compartment like this, then reason, knowledge, and inquiry has no place, if you were to say, in faith. So the road to truth becomes a forbidden road. Faith means not wanting to know what is true. Now, tragic, isn't it? But there are a lot of people today who have similar thought views. There are also theologians today who have these type of views. There's a, a well-known theologian whose theology basically is this. If it was proved that, Christian, that you know, Christ did not exist, then Christianity should not collapse. Okay? So as a result, he has written his own theology, his own philosophy. Now, if Christ did not exist, then it doesn't make any sense. Another individual says, someone on the mount will be meaningful even if Christ did not exist. Now, that doesn't make sense. Facts have to be there. But there are a lot of followers, uh, philosophers today who will say that this is what philosophy is. There's a dif differentiation. There's a compartment for faith. You do not need any facts. Now, try and progress that, if you were to say, into today's world, where a lot of people will say, just have faith, you know, just have faith. Now, if you ask them reasons for your faith, reasons for what they believe in, reasons for the doctrines that they are believing in, they say, no, I just have faith in this. I just have faith in this. No, when we are speaking about the faith, it is something that is tangible. It is something that is strong. It is something that can be depended upon. So let's move further. When you're thinking about faith, okay, the word faith, pistis in Greek, you know, means that which evokes trust and assurance, a state of believing based on the reliability of the one trusted. It's a conviction of the truth, being worthy of belief and trust. These are all the word meanings, as it were. So when you're speaking about the Christian faith, we are saying, I put my faith because it evokes a trust. I have studied these facts, and as a result, I recognize that Christianity is trustworthy. So I have belief. I have faith in that. It's a state of believing based on the reliability of the one that is trusted. I put my faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross because I believe that Jesus was a historical person. I believe that he came and lived and died and rose again, that he can be trusted. I have conviction of the truth. I'm convinced that Christianity is the only way, so I based my faith in the Lord. I'm uh, recognizing this truth that you know, Christian faith is worthy of belief and trust. If you ask a lot of people today, what is faith? They will say that faith is believing in something that you cannot prove and uh, something which you're not really sure of. That's what they say is faith. But that is not faith. That is not how the Bible speaks of faith. Faith is derived from the word to be persuaded. Faith is literally translated trust. And it speaks of something that rests upon a solid conviction of the trust and the one in whom we have placed our trust, God himself. So that is the faith that he's speaking about. It's not an individual subjective faith. It is something that is tangible. So when you're speaking about contending earnestly for the faith, as Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 would say, faith is the substance, that's the assurance, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The mind and the heart are not in two compartments. The mind and the heart are together. So faith is objective. Faith can be verified. Faith has proof. Faith has facts. All these things are together. In other words, we have an objective basis for a subjective belief. That is the faith that he has spoken, uh, he is speaking about. But we must recognize that uh, modern man, if we move further, modern man cannot talk. 
about the object, about his faith. He can only speak about the faith itself. But in Christianity, the value of faith depends upon the object towards which the faith is directed. That's the next slide. Christian faith. This is the statement that Francis Schaeffer has said. He says, probably the best way to describe this concept of modern theology is to say that it is a faith in faith rather than faith directed to an object which is actually there. Modern man cannot talk about the object of his faith, only about the faith itself. In Christianity, the value of faith depends upon the object towards which the faith is directed. Faith depends on its object. It's not faith in faith. It is not faith in faith. It is not faith in yourself. It is in faith in the living God. That is the faith. So it looks outward to the God who is there and to the Christ who in history died upon the cross once and for all, finished the work of atonement, and on the third day rose again in space and time. This makes Christian faith open to discussion and to verification. It makes Christian faith open to discussion and open for verification. Now, when you're speaking about this content for the faith, that does not mean that we, you know, fight by beating others down and saying, I'm the right one, you are all wrong, okay? And uh, it is basically meaning proclaim the truth. As Charles Spurgeon put it across, he says, the truth is like a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion, just turn it loose and it will defend itself. So this is the way God's word is. It, if we begin to proclaim it, it will defend itself. That is what the defense of the gospel is all about. Then he moves on further and he says, this faith that has been handed down to us once and for all. It has been handed down to us once and for all. The Greek word that is used here speaks about a single occurrence and something that is decisively unique in nature, handed down once and for all. It can be rightly translated as one time for all time. One time for all time. Okay. So this is why in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, Paul is surprised. He says, how come you turned aside? So he says, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he has to be accursed. Christ is the only way. The gospel is the only gospel. Don't change the gospel. What do false teachers do today? They change the gospel. They say there's a difference. This is for today's generation. This is the modern gospel. This is you know, the final revelation. What we need to know has already been revealed once and for all. This is what the important thing is. So what does this say about new revelations concerning salvation that is supposedly to come from God? Whether it was Muhammad who speaks about a vision from the angel Gabriel, or you have the Mormons who believe in Joseph Smith who received a vision to write down his scripture, or whether it comes to today's people who speak about new revelation, new revelation. God revealed this to me. This is what God told me. So when people suggest all these things, what they are basically saying is God's revelation is incomplete. It has not yet been given, handed down once and for all. They would say it is still in progress or it needs to be in a repeated change. But our responsibility is to contend earnestly for the faith that has been handed down to us. <coughs> Moving further, <clears throat> the word that is used there for the saints, it has been handed down to whom? The saints. The word saint is hagios in Greek, which is literally translated holy one. So the word really means one that has been dedicated or consecrated to God's service. And that understanding of that word, every Christian is a saint. So in other words, what Jude is saying, that this is the message I'm writing to you, that every Christian must contend earnestly for the faith that has been once and for all given to that person, given to the believer. 
In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 18, we read, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Colossians 1, 2 says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So saints are not just you know, individuals or some you know, different beings, as it were. Every believer, one who is separated, dedicated, consecrated to the service of God, is definitely a saint. So when he's speaking about the gospel that has been handed down once and for all to us, you know, then he says, I was impressed by God. You know, there was a necessity from the Spirit of God to change the purpose of writing. So what caused Jude to change his message? What was the turning point? Let's look at you know, that in the next few you know, sections of this particular verse. You know. The second part of verse 4 says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. The reason for changing over is that this... Uh, False teachers have entered, have crept in. And what are they denying? They are denying the Lordship of Christ. Do you know that every New Testament book except Philemon contains warnings about false teaching? The next slide, I think. Do you know that every New Testament book except Philemon contains warnings about false teaching? 26 out of the 27 books contains warnings about false teaching. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? Definitely that God places a high importance on right doctrine and teaching. So you and I need to be careful. We should not just take everything that comes along. We need to be careful about what we accept as right doctrine. Be careful. Because it says over here, these men have crept in unnoticed, have crept in unnoticed. <clears throat> Remember, this was not many years away from the early church, okay? So if these things would happen in that generation, when Jesus warned the people of what will happen, when Paul warned the people of what will happen, when Peter warned the people of what will happen, but still so close after the early church, when these individuals have accepted these false teachers, then how much more today we need to be careful? How much more need, uh, today we need to be even more cautious to make sure that we don't allow this wrong teaching to take a grip but contend for the faith. Now, the word that is used there for kreptin, it's an interesting word, perisdio, which basically means to slip in stealthily or to sneak in, hard to detect, or to slip in sideways, okay? You know, think of these three words, okay? To slip in stealthily so that no one notices it. To sneak in, you know, camouflaging, hard to detect, or to slip in sideways so that very slowly you're coming in, nobody is noticing you. In extra-biblical Greek, the term describes the cunning craftiness of a lawyer who through clever argumentation infiltrated the minds of courtroom officials and corrupted their thinking. The key thing needed to detect such infiltration is the one thing many conservative theologians say the church lacks most, that is discernment. It is like a lawyer who can plead his case, and I, even though the guy has committed the crime, he presents the case in such a manner that you know, he is acquitted, that he has not committed the crime. We have to be careful of the words that these individuals use. How can they, we be careful? Discernment is what is so very, very essential. Another translation or uh, commentator writes to slip in secretly as if by a side door. And anything about slipping in sideways, to slip in secretly by a side door. And Charles Spurgeon makes this quote where he says, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. Think of that statement. One devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. And look at the statement you know, of A.W. Tozer. 
when he says, so skilled is error at imitating truth that the two are constantly being mistaken for each other. It takes a sharp eye these days to know which brother is Cain and which is Abel. It's like counterfeit notes. They look so similar. But unless you are a trained individual who knows the original, it would easily be, you know, you'd easily be led astray. Also, if you notice in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, <laughs> Jesus speaks about another you know, weed and a wheat and the tares. And look at that verse where he says, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. While his men were sleeping, the enemy came. And that's what is happening. If the church is sleeping today, these false teachers have come in and sowed all these tares, sowed all these wrong doctrines, sowed all these false teachings. And if there's no discernment, the faith will be lost. We would not be able to pass on to the next generation the faith that has been entrusted to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes and says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. There are so many individuals today who call themselves different, different big names, isn't it? You know? And it sounds very Christian, sounds very religious, as it were. But Paul is very clear. They are all false gospels. They are all false gospels. Paul writing in, in Acts chapter 20, when he's there with the church at Ephesus, he warns them that after his departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves. That's what cults are all about. Cults are not from outside the church. Cults are from within the church. This is why we must be careful. We must have great discernment. Now we may ask this question, why has God allowed these false teachers to come in? Now, we may look at some of the false teachers of today. They are having a big program. They are having large crowds following. They are rolling in money. They are rolling in funds. You know? And you may say, but I know this guy is not preaching the truth. Why is God allowing all that to happen? If this is the question that you are having, let's read further what is mentioned for them. <clears throat> the next slide speaks about what God has already marked out for them. He says, for these false teachers, they have been ordained to this condemnation. Or basically what it's saying is it has been written before. It is written beforehand. The Greek word prographo, which basically means, you know, that you know, there's an action that God has taken place in, a, uh, in the past and it extends, extends up to the present day. In other words, God has already decided What's going to happen to them? If you're having a question, why is God not doing anything about it? No, God has already decided what he is going to do about it, that he is definitely going to condemn them. He is not going to get leave them scot-free. And this fact should bring comfort to all believers. As we struggle against the spiritual forces that seems to be winning this battle, but this is the time that we must stand firm, recognizing that the battle is definitely the Lord's. The Lord knows what's going to happen to them. The wheat and the tares are together. Judgment will come, then the tares will be removed and condemned or thrown into the fire. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they would exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Read through each of those words, uh, in our words and think about the false teachers and preachers today, following their own sensuality. And because of them, Christianity is being maligned. And because of their greed, they are exploiting individuals. They are growing rich at the cost of the poor. But the scripture is saying, don't worry. Their judgment has already been decided. Also, if you notice in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, 
Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. Look at the compare and contrast. The apostates are prepared for condemnation, but the believers have been prepared for good works and salvation. So we must stand firm. We must stand firm because God has assured that he will be with us in this battle. <coughs> so there was an error in their doctrine. There was also an error in their practice. There was an error in their practice as well. It was a grievous error. Why? Because ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. This is the second part of you know, the uh, fourth verse. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Here again, we have a, the triplet of the apostles' character, the apostates' character, their conduct, and their creed. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, Jesus, speaking about the false prophets, says, You will know them by their fruit. A good tree will bear good fruit, but a bad tree will bear bad fruit. So you will know them by their fruit. So what is the fruit that is being spoken or seen in these apostates? Second Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, you know, many will follow their sensuality. That is their fruit. Many will be, you know, they will be full of greed. That is their fruit. They will exploit you with false words. That is their fruit. You know? All these things you know, and, you know, the way of the truth will be maligned. You know? Christianity gets a bad reputation because of them. That is their fruit. And in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, A little leaven leavens up the whole lump of dough. So this is why we must be careful. Do not allow even a little of these you know, false teachings to creep in. Because once you allow a little, it will you know, change your whole thinking. <laughs> okay? Now the word turn, you know, when it speaks about turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. The word turn in the NASB is better translated as alter or pervert. And signifies that these individuals were distorting the real message of God's grace. And R.C. Lenski mentions that the worst forms of wickedness consist in perversions of the truth, in perversions of the truth. So they were turning in terms of, they were perverting, they were the truth. How did they pervert the truth? They changed the gospel into something that they could play around with sin. The doctrine of grace gave them an excuse, if you were to say, to sin. Now, the idea behind the ancient word lewdness you know, is sin that is practiced without shame. Sin that is practiced without shame. You know. The distortion of God's truth resulted in this type of a lifestyle. Sin that was practiced without shame. You know. They said, we can do anything, what do you want to? All the sins possible, as long as grace is there, God is going to forgive us. And this is why, if you notice in the church today, there's so much, you know, so much of all these licentious practices. They think they can get away with it. Why? Because they are saying, you know, can we, shouldn't we continue in sin that grace may increase? But Paul's writing says, may it never be. May it never be. Think of an example of an, uh, an apostate by the name of Nicholas. You know, the name of Nicholas. Okay? The apostate you know, Nicolaitans, which the early 2nd century sources you know, say, started with Nicholas being identified as a proselyte from Antioch. Now, he was the one who you know, had the belief system of Gnosticism. What was Gnosticism? Basically, they were saying that the soul or the spirit is what is important. The flesh is bad. The spirit is good. So there was a separation. There was a dualistic notion. So what one, is, what, uh, one did with the body 
was of no consequence since all that mattered was only the spirit. So they used it for their own ends for licentiousness or lewd practices. So when you speak about the turning the grace of God into licentiousness, basically it means that we recognize that there is a union between the body and the soul. It is one unit. We cannot say this is an act of sin in the body, but not an act of sin in the soul. This is why, if you notice in uh, <clears throat> the next slide, it speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 to 20, where he says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't you know that? How can you do something evil, immoral from your body with your body and think that you can get away with it? Why? Because you have a right relationship with God. Why? Because God is gracious. God is merciful. You know, you preach that type of a message, then the scripture is saying you are on the wrong track. <coughs> so they had error in their practice. They also had error in their doctrine. Well, they denied their only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The word that is used there for Lord, Kyrion, <laughs> denotes an authority. So what they were really saying is, <laughs> we do not allow God's authority over us. We will do what we want to with our bodies, with our teaching, with our followers, with our group. This is my kingdom. This is my kingdom. This is not God's kingdom. They speak about building God's kingdom, but they are actually building their own kingdom. They do not want to allow God's authority over their lives. Whereas in contrast, if you notice, when Jude starts off saying, Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. A bond servant of Jesus Christ. So that is the difference between the two. The false teachers do not want to have any authority. They do not want any supervision. They don't want to have any, you know, making sure that anybody would uh, uh, check up on their books, maybe, you know, accountability. The false teachers don't want all that. You know? But the genuine one is a bond servant, is a bond servant, okay? Moving further, okay? Titus chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. This is a verse, by the way, with the children of God movement, which was there a couple of years ago, which is still around, you know, but not so much so. You know, there were a group you know, which was a cult, which believed in free sex, which believed in you know, sharing their bodies, you know, and you know, they had a floor plan of heaven as a, as a poster with people in different, different rooms in different types of intercourses. And when you ask them, hey, look here, how can you put up an impure picture like that? This is the verse they used to quote. They said, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. You know, nothing is pure. Now, they use scripture to you know, excuse their lifestyle. This is what a cult is really all about. <clears throat> the next verse in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 31. The next slide, Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 31 says, They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them, for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. False teachers are interested only in their gain. False teachers are interested only in their lustful desires. Somewhere or the other, this will definitely be, uh, this will definitely come out. So, true individuals recognize God's authority over their lives whereas the false teachers do not want to recognize God's authority. This is why the false teachers go away from God's authority by not allowing the word of God to be supreme in their lives. They misinterpret the word. If somebody speaks to them to correct it, they don't want to accept that authority. 
they set up other standards of authority. Maybe, you know, it's the church, maybe it's a group, maybe it's you know, the leader who assumes the greater authority even over scriptures and God himself. Somebody made this statement, you know, listen to this, you know, which is so very important for us even as we do this book. The church is always one generation short of extinction. The church is always one generation short of extinction. If our generation fails to guard the truth and entrust it to our children, then that will be the end. Today we are living in a world where if we ask a person what is the gospel, they may not even be able to answer it. They may give different, different, different things, which is the gospel. You know, that Jesus can be our friend. Jesus will be, give you good health. Jesus will give you good gains. You know, that this is the gospel that Jesus came to give you good life, good health. That is not the gospel, isn't it? So the church is always one generation short of extinction. If we allow these type of things to continue on and not contend for the faith, Next generation will grow up you know, without any identity as a believer. Okay? Let me close with some concluding thoughts this evening. Okay? Number one, we are all asked by God to contend for the faith and be on guard against false teaching. Church leadership, this appeal is for every one of us. Each one of us is called to defend our faith, contend for our faith, fight for what we believe in. Secondly, God's sovereignty over his creation includes his foreknowledge and actions before time began of those who would oppose him. We can rest in knowing all is going according to his knowledge and plan. Now you may look around and say, what is really happening? What is, why is God not, not doing something about it? Take comfort to know that everything is going according to his plan. God has you know, put them aside for condemnation. And thirdly, false Christians can be identified by the ungodly lifestyles they manifest. It may take some time, but the tree will always bear the fruit that's planted in it. And we need to ensure our actions and our deeds are not denying Jesus. And we must also constantly examine ourselves to ensure that we are in the faith. We must be individuals contending for the faith. We must be individuals that we are able to show forth in our own lives what is the genuine gospel. And also, we must be able to identify the false gospels and the false teachers, identify them by their fruit that they produce. And as a result, we would be able to make sure that we pass on this gospel that has been entrusted to us faithfully to the next generation. Let's bow our heads in prayer together.